All right. If you have your Bibles, let's turn. Uh, let's turn to Second Peter chapter three. Uh, although, if you want to also put a finger as you're flipping by Luke chapter one, is where we're going to uh, go pretty quickly uh, after that. As uh, so we are looking at what is so glorious about Jesus Christ, which seems to be perfect that we, you know, are uh, doing this as we progress into the Advent season. Like, well, we've been going through this long enough. It's been several seasons. Uh, so we might be doing this. I might, in a, a few weeks, I might go, isn't this perfect for the Easter season uh, that we're talking about how glorious Jesus is? Uh, but, I mean, the truth is, talking about how glorious Jesus is is just what we do, really, every week. So uh, this one may be just a little bit more concentrated. But it all comes from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This is uh, what has set us on this, this journey, this adventure, right? It comes from the word advent. Uh, it, is this idea of of Second uh, Peter three eighteen grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Jesus is glorious. Uh, he is glorious because He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is the Christ, and so we are to give Him glory now, right now. And to the day of eternity. Glory is not just something that one day we'll, you know, give him glory when we see him face to face. It is our job to give glory to Jesus now. And in order to give him glory, you cannot make up glory. He does not need us to make up glory, but we need to know why he is so glorious. So we looked at how he is glorious because he is Lord. He is the Lord once. When you go back and you see all the talk of the Lord in your Old Testament text, all those capital L-O-R-Ds, you are recognizing that this is, this is who is going to come and save us, is who our Savior is. But he's not just the Lord, he is our Lord. So we saw that he is our master, our ruler, the one in charge of our life. What he says is supposed to go uh, for us. And now we've been looking at how he is our Savior. Probably the most common way uh, that we think of Jesus is he is the, my Savior. Jesus is my Savior and Lord. And so we looked at what does he save us from? Because we, we mentioned that the, the problem when you say Savior is that a lot of people in the world don't really know that they need saving, right? They think everything is, that they're okay. They think that the, the, everything in this world is basically okay. They're fine. They seem fine. Uh, and even if they're not, God's kind of a nice guy. And so they're sure even if they die, everything's okay between them and God. So things will be fine. Uh, in that, if that's the case, there is no need for a savior. Uh, but we're, we looked at how that is not the case, that we are not fine. We are dead in our sins. So we saw how Jesus saves us from our sins, taking, remember that exclamation from John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we saw that Jesus takes away our sin. How does he do that? He washes them away. He dies in our place. All of these are these word pictures in Scripture of how Jesus takes our sin away, of how he, how he saves us specifically from our sins. But sin's not our only problem, right? It's not just that we need to be saved from our sin. That's not the only saving that Jesus does. The Bible doesn't just say that he saves us from our sins. Uh, we, in other words, are not the only problem. So what we find out is that even when our sin is dealt with, even when our sin has been taken care of, we still quite literally are in a whole world of trouble, right? We are dealing with, uh, as we're going to see today, how Jesus is going to save us from our enemies, not enemies explicitly or solely inside of us, but exterior, that we still are in a world 
of trouble. We still have enemies around us. So Jesus saves us from our sins. And this week we're going to see how Jesus, and by this week, I mean this week, next week, and then the week after that. Uh, we're going to see how Jesus saves us from our, our enemies. So to do this, let's turn to the book of Luke where this is mentioned again, uh, just like when it talked about how Jesus, you know, you call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Here again, we see that Jesus' work of what he's going to save us from is mentioned from the very beginning. Before Jesus is even born, we are told that not only is he going to save us from our sins, he's going to save us from our enemies. That that's what this child is coming to do. He's coming to save us from our enemies. So let's stand as we read God's word and read about uh, our glorious Savior. And so because he is glorious uh, and his word uh, is glorious, we're, we stand uh, hopefully not just physically, but, but representing what we're also doing in our hearts, honoring the word of God and uh, submitting, submitting to it. Uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for our glorious Savior, the reason that we are gathered here. He is the one who has given us hearts that seek to worship you. He is the one who has called us together, united us as a body. And he is the one who has commanded us to come together and worship for our good and also for your glory. And so, Father, we do that today. We pray, Father, that these words, God, that you would speak them into our heart, that you would teach them to us and that we would obey them as your children. Thank you, Father, for saving us from our enemies. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. And proclaim, Jesus is Lord. Amen. All right. So here we see uh, Zechariah is rejoicing, right? This is Zechariah rejoicing that Jesus, he's not just rejoicing in his son that is is coming, but that Jesus is going to save us and he's going to save us from our enemies and really from all who hate us. Now, Zechariah is going to tell us that this is not some new idea, right? This wasn't revealed to him along with the news of the coming baby. It's not like, hey, here's this baby. And also this baby is going to save us from our uh, some of our enemies. I know you never thought about that. I know that's not something that you ever considered. Zechariah says, look, this is what was promised long ago, right? This idea that God is going to save us from our enemies, that he will send his Christ the Savior to save us from our enemies is something promised a long time ago. As he says uh, in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, right? This is what the prophet said was going to happen. And when you go to the Old Testament, there is throughout the Old Testament, bathed in various sections, this promise of a king who would come, of a king who would come not just to rule, but who would come and utterly destroy the enemies of God's people. And you'll see things that, like like, uh, Zechariah mentions, you'll see promises of horns uh, and of sons of of David, of slaying, of slaughtering of of our enemies, of, of great victory promised in a coming 
savior in a king. So, for example, Psalm 132. And there are multiple ones. I just, I just pulled out the ones that uh, had a lot of connections with horns and sons, like I said. Uh, so Psalm 132, verse 17 and 18, he says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Remember the word anointed is the word Messiah in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And when I say remember, I mean remember, we're going to talk about that in four weeks. Uh, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So he says, from David is going to come this horn, what Zechariah calls a, a horn of salvation. Now a horn, you say, well, does he mean a horn horn? Like a toot horn? Or does he mean like a horn, like from a like from an ox horn? The answer is yes, uh, because what did they make their horns out of? Right? They made their horns out of guess what? Horns, uh, right? So that's how that's how you sort of get the word, right? Someone's not like, what should we call this trumpet thing? I don't. Know, let's call it a horn. Well, that's already taken. Well, no one will notice. Uh, it's it's the same thing. The idea of a horn is one of both strength and a proclamation of strength right like when you when you've got this wild ox's horn and you like that's what's so funny when people try to blow like shofars today and we don't know how and they're not very good and it's like and you're like i don't i don't think jericho's falling uh with that uh but that was what would happen you would blow this horn i mean think like uh, lord of the rings the two towers type stuff like you just and and that's the idea this horn a horn is a sign of strength of power it is proclaiming we are coming right uh, and 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 everybody's coming uh, coming with us and says so this horn of salvation this davidic king is going to come in power and what is he going to do he is going verse 18 he is going to bring shame on the enemies of god's people he will clothe them right? He clothes us in righteousness. So think about that. Our king clothes us in righteousness and he clothes our enemies with shame. Uh, and on him, his crown is going to shine. That, that word crown is actually a different word for crown. That is, it is, it's actually where we get the word like Nazarite. It's the same word. His not, Nazar, his consecrated. The other words is saying this will be a holy king. So we got a holy king coming from David who is going to bring salvation uh, and going to not just bring salvation. He's going to bring it by uh, clothing our enemies with shame. So uh, how about Psalm 92 verses 9 through 11? For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. So the enemies of the Lord who are also, notice in verse 11, the enemies of God's people, right? It's not just the Lord is just doing this to his enemies. His enemies are also our enemies, as we're going to see in just, uh, in just a little bit. And they are going to meet their downfall. They are going to perish. They're going to be scattered. And, and they, God's people, will see that. Uh, we will see the, the Messiah, the Christ is going to see this explicitly. He's going to see it. He's going to hear it. Uh, this doom of 
these evil uh, assailants. How about Jeremiah 23? Uh, Jeremiah 23, people uh, in exile, definitely enemies look like they're winning, right? Uh, People of God aren't even in the land of God. Uh, They're scattered abroad. So it's not the enemies who are scattered. It's the people who are going to be scattered. Uh, But what does Jeremiah 23 say? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So there's the goodness. There's the righteousness that our righteous branch is going to bring. He's going to save us from our sins. He's going to cleanse the land. He's going to bring a holy people and a holy nation. Uh, In his days, verse 6, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God is is promising that from David is going to come this king. Remember, we're a long time past David at this point. Uh, We're trying to find the Davidic line uh, and make sure we keep that seed uh, intact. Uh, And here God promises that the enemies, not only are they not going to win, even though it looks like they have one, right? The people of God are scattered. He says, I'm going to bring them back into the land and from their enemies and they will dwell securely. Now, remember in the exile, they are not dwelling securely in the land. They're not even in the land. Uh, But God is going to so reverse the situation for the people of God uh, that not only will they be brought back, he's going to destroy the enemies in the process. I mean, the idea of just escaping would be miracle enough, right? How are we going to get out from the hand of the Babylonians? Uh, But not only are they going to escape, God is going to destroy uh, their enemies and they will dwell secure. And of course, that is pointing us to what God is going to do in Christ. Um, Psalm 57, go back to the psalm, verses 1 through 3. It says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So look, he's saying, so something bad is going on, right? So he's going to the Lord. He's running to the Lord uh, for refuge. He's running under the shadow of his wings. That's not what you do on like a sunny day, right? Things are bad. Uh, and he says there are storms of destruction coming. Now, it'd be easy to see those storms of destructions just as events, but it's going to be very clear from this passage. These aren't events. These are people, right? Because what does he, what does he say? He will send from heaven and he's going to save me from these storms and do what? And he will put to shame those who trample on us. So the storms of destruction aren't just bad things that happen in your life, although that, that certainly fits the context of that and that you are do run to the Lord in times of trouble. But here the trouble is very much a person. It's very much people. Uh, and so you run to the Lord for shelter. He will save you. But again, that salvation is not just the positive side of saving us. It's also the negative side of bringing condemnation and judgment on our enemies. He will save us from them. And we could, we could go back. Let's go back even further, right? Let's go back to, to the, the first sort of prophet, so to speak. Uh, I mean, we were talking about the, the last words of Peter. What about the last words of Moses? I mean, think about all that Moses has written. What are the last words we get from Moses before the next thing is, oh, and by the way, the Lord took Moses up there and said, there's a promised land. You can't go when Moses dies. 
What's the last thing that Moses says in, in Deuteronomy 33? Well, they're words of salvation, which we would expect, but it's also, they're also words of God's promise to rid his people of their enemies. Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword, right? The sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. I mean, that's, these are the last thing that Moses tells the people. The last words of this great prophet uh, is, is this, I mean, this is the first person when God said, hey, write this down, right? Here it is. And here's, what is the last things he says? God will save you. He will rescue you. He will redeem you and your enemies will not be victorious. The Lord will be your sword of triumph and it is your enemies that will fall down before you and you will walk on their backs like carpets, right? Uh, so, so that's, I mean, definitely a picture of saving us from our enemies. So when Zechariah says that he, his expectation that God would save his people from their enemies come, comes not as some, you know, unexpected prophetic utterance. Uh, his response comes from really sound biblical theology, right? Uh, Zechariah just had read his Bible, uh, and he knew what the Lord was going to do. Uh, this, this is what God has always promised to save his people from their enemies. So that's what we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. If we see that Jesus is going to save us, we've seen how he saves us from our sins. Now we're going to see how does Jesus uh, save us from our enemies. So this week we'll look at who are our enemies uh, and then we'll look at when will Jesus save us from our enemies and then uh, how do we live uh, victory in Jesus, as the song goes. What does that look like for Christians? Um, so the first thing, who are our enemies? So if Jesus is going to save us from our enemies, who's he saving us from? Because I think sometimes what we like to do is just say, well, the enemy is us. He's just saving us from us. But that's not actually the case scripturally. It's great. It's a, it's a good thing. You should think that. That's partially true because you are a sinner uh, and you are your own problem. But that's not the only enemy that the Lord mentions. The Bible is going to lay out to us three main enemies, and we'll see one final enemy as we bring it back around, uh, three main enemies of the people of God. The first enemy is the world. The world. It's, let's start out with a big one, right? The first enemy is everybody. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not, we're not building like some, and then it gets, you know, worse and worse. Uh, the world, the Bible says, hates God's people. If you look, look at how Zechariah describes their enemies in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So who are we saying safe from? From our enemies and all who hate us. Now, what's interesting about this translation, this is a fun part in translation, is that both the word enemies and the word all who hate us all come from words that, different words that mean hate. So it's like you, you could reasonably translate it that he's going to save us from all who hate us and from the hand of our enemies. It could, I mean, the two are, are basically synonyms, but what, it's not important how you translate it. What's important is that for both of them, both our enemies and those who hate us, is that this is about hate. And this is about not liking 
the people of God. So God is going to save us from those who hate us, from those who don't like us. Well, then the question becomes, well, who hates us? Who would hate worshipers of the Lord God Almighty, right? And it is really unreasonable because we're the only people helping this world out. Uh, And the answer simply is the world. And by the world, I mean, similar to how John uses it a lot, I mean the fallen world that is living in rebellion to God, the fallen world that is still enslaved to sin, the fallen world who follows the prince of the power of the air, that that world, the world, hates God and with it hates God's children. In fact, it is because the world hates God that they hate God's children or that they hate us. For example, John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Well, why should we not be surprised that the world hates us? Why is it not surprising? Because the world knows in the end, the reason the world hates us is because the world knows we're not like them. And it hates that. It hates that we're not like them. So this is what Jesus says in John 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So, okay, so feel better about it. But also, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus says, don't be shocked the world hates you. It hated, it hated me first. The reason the world hates you is because the world loves its own and it's clear that you are not part of its own. It is clear to the world, and this is why it's going to be important how we live and, and why we live righteous lives. It is clear to the world, or supposed to be, that we are not like them. That we are not of the world. That God has obviously chosen us out of the world. We see the same thing in John 17. John 17, 14. I have given them your word. Is Jesus' prayer there right before he goes to the cross. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Again, the world hates believers because for believers, they are clearly no longer home here in this fallen world, right? We, are, we, have, we have assigned our citizenship to a new kingdom. And that kingdom is assaulting this other kingdom and the previous kingdom doesn't like it. And it's not a fan of it. And so it hates those who are not of them. And this has always been the case. I mean, there, there is, in history, there is no such thing as a neutral party when it comes to the things of God. There's never been anybody, I mean, from, I mean you go from the, from the Canaanites to the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the just plain Gentiles. The world who has rejected God also rejects God's people. And it's no surprise. The world living in rebellion to the king of course, hates those who are giving their lives in service to that king. So who are our enemies? The first thing we see is our enemies are the fallen world. The fallen world are our enemies that we must be saved from. But, but that's not all. 
Right? Oh, there's going to be more than the world, right? That sounds great. Uh, who are your enemies? The world and then plus. Uh, just as we are followers of God and love what he loves, hates what he hates, the fallen world in their hatred of us is not operating on some sort of solo mission. Right? The fallen world didn't just get all together and say, I think we should hate them. Right? The fallen world is simply following, just as we follow our God, they are following their God. And they hate, just as we hate what God hates, they hate what he hates. And just as Jesus says, we are to do what our father has done, and he does what his father does, they are doing what their father has always done. And so the next enemy on our list, enemy of God's people, is Satan. Why does the world hate us? Well, because Satan hates us. In fact, when you go back to John 17, Jesus tied in, in, in that prayer, he, he, he tied the hatred that we receive from the world, he ties that to the designs of the devil. That Satan is coming after believers. So when we're looking, how does Satan hate us? Satan is coming after believers. John 17, 14 through 15. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you what? That you keep them from the evil one. So the world will hate us, but the problem isn't just the world. The problem, he says, is the evil one. So he says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. That's not the chief problem. The problem is the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. It is the evil one. It is Satan who is behind the scheming of the world. And he is apparently coming after believers in some way so that Jesus has to pray that they are protected from the evil one. Keep them from him. Protect them from him. So so the, the evil one is coming after believers and he's stirring up the world. He's fomenting them to hate us. But it's all a part of his schemes. It's all part of his desires to come after us. The Bible is clear that Satan is the enemy of the people of God. Luke chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So Satan, who has fallen from heaven, And and then, you know, that old serpent, that stinging scorpion himself is the enemy of God and of the people of God. This enemy and his power that are trying to hurt us. They're not just, Satan is not just raging against God. He is trying to use his power against us. And so Jesus is telling uh, his disciples here that, that, that he, they do not have to fear him, that they have authority over these things uh, because he is going to keep them from the enemy. He's going to protect them from the enemy, that nothing will hurt them uh, as their enemy pursues them. So Satan is an enemy of the people of God. And, and that's why the, the Bible describes Satan as our adversary. That Satan is our, ad, I mean, when you can think of like, like those boxing pictures where they're like 
face to face, going toe to toe with one another. Satan is is our adversary. First Peter, we saw this. First Peter chapter five, verse eight. He says, "Be sober minded, be watchful." Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Satan. Who is your adversary? Well, you might think your adversary is someone at work. You might think your adversary is your sibling who thinks it's so great that she got braces. Whatever. Like you might think your adversary is this person or that person, but your adversary ultimately is the devil, which should be frightening, right? I don't want any, I don't want any of us to be like, oh, that's not a big deal. Like these enemies are supposed to be scary and Satan is coming in, in, in an adversary position. And what is he trying to do? This is why you should be scared. He's prowling around looking for what? For someone to devour. Jesus doesn't say, Peter doesn't say here, hey, be watchful. Your adversary's out there, but he's just this old gummy mouth, uh, you know, lion. Uh, he says, look, Satan is out there. Be watchful because he is wanting to devour you. He is your adversary. In fact, the Bible tells us that Satan is working against the kingdom of God. So the world is fomenting because the kingdom of God is is spreading through their kingdom they hate that branch they hate the they hate the leaven in the loaf they they hate all of that and so there's this there's this this hatred for the kingdom of God and Satan himself is working against that kingdom Matthew chapter 13 verse 38 and 39 he says the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So that's the good seed. So in this world, the Lord has, is raising up good seeds of the kingdom. You can think of Jesus talking about the parable of the soils here that, that sprout and that grow a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. It's, it's growing, right? Well, here he says the problem is, isn't the good seed. He says the problem is what? The weeds in the world are the sons of of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil now i think this verse is important for a couple of reasons one it tells us that satan is an enemy of the kingdom of god and how does he express his enmity by sowing weeds in the field by by sowing in the world weeds of wickedness that's what satan is doing But it also helps us uh, to see why the world would be so opposed to Christians. That the world isn't just, again, some sort of neutral bystander. The world isn't these unbiased evaluators of different worldviews. That people of the world are sprouts from seeds of the enemy. They are sons, as it says, of the evil one. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So we're in this world. We're either good seed planted by the Lord or we are this uh, weeds planted by the evil one sowed in the world. And, and so, of course, those weeds, those sons of the evil one are going to be enemies of the people of God because Satan is working against the kingdom of God. And as the Lord is sowing uh, good seed, he is sowing weeds. Um, Satan is also our accuser. 
So if we're looking at all the ways that Satan is opposing the people of God, he's, a, he's their adversary, he's working against the kingdom of God, he is also working as our accuser. This is the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Beginning verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan, which again, remember, Satan is the, remember, Satan is the Hebrew word for accuser. You're like, oh, yeah, I forgot it. Uh, Satan is just the, the, the word, the Hebrew word is Satan. This is just, so he is the accuser par excellence. It's the epitome of what he does. He is the accuser. And so, and so John is just pulling that idea back into the New Testament. But he's the accuser not of the world. Satan's just not out there accusing everybody. He is the accuser of Christians. He is the accuser of the brothers. And notice that he does not rest in his accusations. He is night and day, day and night, standing where? This is what I think people get wrong sometimes, that Satan is just accusing you and your ear, and Satan's just tempting me. You know where Satan is? He is accusing you before God, day and night accusing who you are, what you have done. Think, think, for example, the book of Job, right? We've seen there what it looks like when Satan is before the throne of God, casting accusations and aspersions about the genuineness of our salvation. So Satan is nonstop accusing us, and it is not surprising that some of those accusations would come to our own ears. And we would begin to believe the guilt that he heaps upon us more than we believe the grace that the Lord heaps upon us. That's when you get in trouble. And it's when you believe Satan and his accusations more than you believe Christ and his redemption. So Satan is coming against us. He is accusing us. He is our adversary. But he is also not alone. And I'm not just talking about the world here. That Satan, as we know, fell with his own host, a host of demons. So when Jesus talked about the fall of Satan that we saw in Luke, we didn't read this verse because we were going to get to it. It was in response to something that his disciples had said. So go back. We saw Luke 10, 18. Go back to Luke 10, 17. And we'll see that Satan is not working alone. Not only is he not working alone because he's got the world working with him, he is also working with his demonic host. So when Satan is before God accusing us, his demons can be about their own work as well. And that's what we see. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. uh, It says, the 72 returned with joy. And what was their joy? They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So here we see who specifically is the power of the enemy. Well, the demons, they are the power. uh, So they say we've got power. Oh, we are. The demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, that's right. I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. 
So Satan is against us and he's using his demonic forces uh, against us as well. So the Bible speaks uh, of the the demonic. It also speaks a lot of times, uh, it uses these words, rulers and authorities. Yet there are rulers and authorities that are joining with Satan in opposing Christians. And these rulers, so look, for example, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. We saw this passage, right, where he nails our debt to the cross. What did he do in Colossians 2, 15? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So you've got these rulers and authorities who have apparently taken up arms against Christians, right? Because you don't disarm someone who's not holding any weapon. Right? You disarm someone who is holding something. So apparently they've taken up arms against us, these rulers and authorities. Now, now the question might be, well, why would you put rulers and authorities under Satan and not under the world? Now why not say, well, you've got the world who hates us and the rulers and authorities of this world will hate us as, 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 as well. That certainly is, I mean, every time you see the word ruler in scripture, it's not always talking about the demonic. Every time you see that someone has authority, it's not talking always about the demonic. Uh, well, there are two reasons though that I put it under here. The first uh, is that all of these are not hard and fast categories, as, we, as we've already seen when we looked at the world, right? The world hates us because they're sons of the evil one. So technically, I could put all of, you know, I could do Satan and then put the world under that. But, so all of these could fall under, under, under Satan. So, so there is a bleeding of categories here. These are all on the same team, right? It's not like we've got three different teams that hate us. Uh, they, these are all one team. All, they're all on the same team. Uh, so that's the first reason I put them under Satan. But the second is the Bible tells us that even when it is referring to earthly rulers and authorities who are hating us, that behind those rulers and authorities, those earthly versions of them are demonic forces encouraging those rulers and authorities uh, that those rulers and authorities either are demons or are under the sway of demons. In that case, then the difference is why earthly, why not is, is, is moot. But the third reason, and chiefly, the chief reason is that when the Bible describes our battle against rulers and authorities, when it describes how rulers and authorities are our enemies, it describes them uh, in demonic terms. So uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, chief place that it does this. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against, so something that's not flesh and blood, what is not flesh and blood? Rulers against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're not, so who are rulers and authorities in this passage? When you look at Ephesians 6, well, they're tied to the schemes of the devil that we're wrestling against. And they're not flesh and blood. They're instead cosmic powers. They are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when you, when you look at those things, Satan is working with these rulers and authorities with this demonic uh, to, to work against the people of God. So he is sort of wielding them in that way. The demonic against the people. Our accuser, our adversary is using them as his, as it says, his power. They're taking up arms against us. Uh, these spiritual forces, these cosmic powers, these not flesh and blood things. Uh, 
that are that are waging war against us as Christians. So you put this together. The world hates us. Satan wants to devour us. Uh, and he brings his whole host to do it. We've still got one enemy left. Uh, and this one is perhaps the most ominous, and, or at least it'll be the last one standing. Uh, and this is the enemy of death. Death itself is an enemy of the, of the people of God. Uh, and again, we, we say this, it does have a special place because this is said to be the last enemy to be defeated. This is our last enemy. First uh, Corinthians chapter 16, or sorry, 15, verses 24 through 26. Paul says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom, Christ is delivering his kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must remain until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So here again we see rulers and authorities and powers that Christ is destroying, that he is beating, that he is conquering. And who is mentioned as an enemy here? Death. In fact, he's mentioned as the last enemy. The last, so Christ is destroying all his enemies, putting all his enemies under his feet, every rule, every authority, every power. And remember, those are all words that were used to describe the demonic back in Ephesians chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 10. So when Christ is destroying all these things, then the last enemy is putting all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But just like with the world, and just like I said, there are bleeding of categories. Again, death is not detached from the work of Satan. So just as Satan is sort of using the demonic, death is also a weapon wielded by Satan. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So death, I mean, death is satanic in that it is wielded by the evil one. He has this power and he's wielding it like some unholy maul, right? Like the ultimate Sauron, swinging this against the people of God. So you've got the fallen world. You've got fallen angels. We've got the effect of the fall with death, fall, fall, fall. These are, these are all our enemies. And again, they all tie back to Genesis chapter 3, all of them. The world, devil and his angels, death, those are enemies. And that's a formidable list. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're just stopping with the list. And we're doing that for a reason. Is I want us to see all these enemies and think, yeah, that's, that's pretty big. I want us to see, and it should, in your eyes, if you look at that and you go, not a big deal, right? Realize what that is saying about Jesus' promise to save us from them, right? See these enemies as big because they are certainly bigger than all of you. They are bigger than all of us put together. We could not. I mean, there's a reason that the 72 disciples sent out by Christ come back going, you will not believe what happened. Jesus is like, I will believe because I made it happen. Uh, but that's, that's how we should be. We should be amazed that we have not been and will not be overcome by the world. 
We should be amazed that Satan cannot and will not rip off the roof of our church and swing his hammer of death upon us all right now. It should be shocking. I mean, I mean, it, David and Goliath is not an amazing story if Goliath is just a dude. Just a guy. So David went out there and there was another guy out there, Goliath, and he hit him with a stone. No one's, no one's making pictures of that. No one's telling that as their favorite Bible story. God rescuing his people from Egypt. I mean, think about these great works. God rescuing his people from Egypt isn't amazing if he's just rescuing them from some no-name clan of nomads wandering the Arabian Peninsula. And the Israelites happen to get captured by who? We don't even remember their names, but God saved them. Instead of saving his people from the mightiest empire on earth at the time. Big enemies make a big salvation. And so today we should hear this list of enemies and we should tremble because we should realize they should have us. And not only should they have us, we were once a part of them. It should be shocking to us that we have no reason to be afraid. And in many ways, the fact that we're not afraid of the demonic, the fact that we're not afraid of Satan, the fact that we're not afraid of the world, the fact that we're not afraid of death, all bleeds back to just how great the victory of Christ is. But there should be no confidence in ourselves that we could ever slay any of these enemies. I mean, we listed three. The, the idea, we couldn't slay any of them ourselves. We would stand no chance. There's no confidence in us to beat these enemies. It is in Jesus and in Jesus alone that we have victory. And we must remember that. Even if, even if you're, you're not fearing, even if you're not making it a formidable foe, whatever, it better be because of Christ. Because otherwise, this list of enemies is supposed to be a big list because Jesus is saving us from a big problem. So Jesus saves us from the enemies we face in the world. Christian, Jesus will save you from your enemies that you deal with in the world. He'll save you from every one of them. There will not be anything this world can bring against you that will overcome you. Jesus saves us from Satan and his demonic horde. Every, every scheme, every accusation, every prowling, every weed that he plants, all of them will be destroyed. And he saves us from death itself. That last enemy wielded by Satan to strike Fear, Hebrews says, to strike fear, to put us in slavery to fear. Remember, that's how that verse goes on. That, that weapon that strikes fear in the children of man and imprisons them cannot touch us because he has disarmed them. And again, we said we'd bring this back. The last enemy that we'll look at is perhaps the most personal. See, see, Jesus saves us from all these enemies, not because of us, but again, in spite of us. And what makes this grace that God saves us when he does all this, when he saves us from these enemies, is that he does it while we are enemies. So the last enemy that we'll see is us. 
And this is what's going to make it all grace. Because Romans chapter 5 verse 10, and, and we'll bring this verse back up in four weeks. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life while we were enemies. The words used to describe the fallen world, the words used to describe death, the words used to describe Satan himself used to describe us. See, when God saves us, he doesn't save us because we're this beautiful flower that he is protecting from these horrible bad guys. He saves us. He reconciles us to himself when we deserve to get the wrath. And instead, we get the salvation. We get to hide in the shelter of his wings instead of being under the heel of his boot. Instead of facing the sword of triumph. As it talked about. So what do we have to fear? And Christian, as we're preparing for this Advent season, as we're thinking about our salvation and why Jesus is so glorious, one of the things that makes him glorious is you have no reason to be afraid. Are you afraid of of where the world might go? Are you someone who who is scared of the direction it might take and what it'll mean for your life or the life of your children or for America or for whatever? Are you fearful of that as if the world holds a power that God is not ultimately in control of and cannot direct as he wishes? Do you fear the world still as if its schemes might be victorious over you and over the kingdom of God? You have no reason to fear this world. No, you go, there's so many of them. But all it takes is one God to defeat all of them. What about the devil? I mean, it's so funny. Christians have placed the devil on some... We have enthroned the devil. We have given the devil a throne. We have made him sort of co-equal with God. You know, as if Jesus, uh, God has heaven and and the devil is sort of in control of hell. and, And he's like, thanks for the crown. I didn't have it, but thanks for giving it to me anyway. As if there's some grand fight in the heavens about what the outcome of this world is going to be and it's unsure and Satan might be up sometimes and then, and then God's up and no reason to be afraid of Satan. No reason to fear him or his hosts. Maybe you fear death. Maybe you don't fear your own death. Maybe you fear the death of those you love. Are you living as if death is the end when God says it isn't? Are you living in fear that this enemy might actually win and you won't know until it's over? Maybe your fear is yourself. You think you're not good enough. You've messed up too much. And instead of trusting God to save you from yourself, you're constantly trying to right your wrongs on your own. And that does not work. You and I cannot overcome the world. You and I cannot overcome Satan. You and I cannot overcome death. And we can't overcome ourselves on our own. But there is one who saves us from our enemies. Jesus Christ. So Christian, let me tell you, your enemies will not win. They will not take you. They will not take your household. They will not get God's world. They will not get an inch of this 
creation. Not an inch of God's creation will be lost. Not an inch of your life or your soul will be lost to your enemies. All because of Christ. And we'll see next week how he does that. But see these enemies for what they are. See them as this grand force in opposition against you and us. And know that they will not win. Let's pray. I wanted to, since the Bible takes the time to lay out these enemies in grand terms and talk about them seeking to devour us, to accuse us, to stand against us. We have got to see our foes as formidable if we're going to see Jesus' salvation as great. But what we really want to do in response is not to leave here glorying in our enemies. We don't want to leave her going, well, it's a bunch of bad guys against us. We want to see them as formidable, as large, and then Christ as greater still, infinitely greater still. Then if you believe that, if you believe that your enemies will not win, then you will live that way. So Christian, let me ask, just as you're praying is that how you're living are you living as if your enemies are big and that's the end of the story or if you are you saying that your enemies are big and god is bigger still do you live in that victory now that if you do then there's no place for fear in your home or in your heart there's no reason for fear There's no place for anxiety. There's no reason for doubting. There should be no fretting, no sweating, no worrying for the Christian. Because what do we have sad on the victory of Christ when he can win and we can still be so afraid of the things he has beaten? He comes and says, I have beaten them and we're still quaking in our boots. It would be as if the Israelites still shook at the corpse of Goliath. That's what we're doing. He gives us all these promises about the defeat of our enemies and we still fear them. We are scared to death of death. We are frightened of Satan and see his schemes behind every corner as if they might derail our life. We look at the world as if, oh, there's nothing we can do. And we wring our hands as if it is the great kingdom. And we fear that the gates of heaven can't stand against it instead of the other way around. Live in faith. Live in assurance. Live in confidence. And we'll see next week that this isn't just an assurance. It's not just a hope that our victory has come. It is here. It is not just one day. It is today. So let us live in victory. And let us praise Jesus that he saves us from such mortal foes. When the world rages and boils, we do not tremble because of Jesus. When Satan schemes and plots, we do not fear what he does in darkness because of Jesus. When death comes calling, You do not fear its name because you know a greater name, Jesus. 
Father, we come to you today thanking you for our victory. And Father, we see the enemies that you have laid before us and, and we are dumbstruck like the disciples. There is no way that these things should be subject to us. There is no way that we should be able to stand against them. We know that it is only because your son has come to save us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. All, all who hate us. He will save us. He will redeem us. He will hold us fast and keep us safe. Because, Father, his faithfulness is great, like we sang. Because of that, God, we have no reason to fear and we cling to our rock of ages as we sang. And Father, I pray we will not have just sung those things, but we will live them, we will mean them, we will rejoice in them, we will worship you because of them. We do not have to be afraid, but not because of us, only because of you, our great Savior. And it is in his name that we pray and proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and for our good. Amen.